According to the book of Acts, the point of Christianity is the unleashing of those under the power of the devil, even while the devil's children, enemies of God and spewers of hate, oppose it. If you want a short story on that, look at Acts chapter 13, verses 6 through 12, where you see an apostle call another human being to his face, you spewer of hate. The most powerful thing I got out of imbibing the book of Acts this past week, living in the book of Acts this past week, is the vast distinction between the old church's awareness of demons and false worship and our complete lack of awareness of these things. It's quite stunning, really. Now, I understand why this seems far away to us. Modern life has hidden this kind of thinking from us. It's really not even allowed because if you train yourself to think by watching a screen that never thinks about things like demons actually being here, you're never going to have it enter your mind that they might be. You're never going to learn how to actually think about it or see it. You don't spend enough time in the book that tells you how it really is. Now, chief of sinners though I be, don't hear me condemning anybody on this. All I'm saying is it's very easy as a TV culture to neglect the awareness of dark powers and spiritual warfare in your proximity. It's very easy to pretend it's not there. And God, in his mercy, can guide you like a sheep, wandering innocently through many, many wicked things and have you all come out on the other side. But, but Acts doesn't tell you to do that on purpose. The point of Acts is that Jesus frees us from our fear. That's how the demons work, is fear. They use fear to steal time. It's their main goal. They want you to waste your life. They want you to not look for Christ to return. And that's the best way to waste your life, because you'll spend your life not looking for his return, storing up a big pile of crap. That when you die, won't do you any good. Looking for Christ's return, you tend to spend your life seeing the people around you as having need. And wanting to be with them. And since that tends to be something people like, they'll hear about Christ when you do that. And then they go with you to paradise. So it's not a big pile of nothing. It's actually just the growth of the church in life. The point is that's not really like something we have to do or something we should feel bad about not doing. The point is that it's about worship. And what we have forgotten is that most of this stuff going on around us that aren't churches are forms of worship for most people that go there. You can go there and get a meal, but they go there and that little Buddha statue actually means something to them. Yeah? You'll live among pagans and dark spiritual realities are out there. The point of Christianity is the freeing of you in the mind and heart from these things, even while those around us oppose it. First step is acknowledging there will be those who oppose it. There will be those who don't want it. Along with this idea that there is no such thing is the challenge that the miracles by and large have gone away in the church. What do I mean by that? It means if you have your hand cut off and lie as a beggar for several months or years in the street, I can't come by and heal it. And anybody who says I'm anointed by the spirit and I'm an apostle who tries will show you. They also can't make limbs grow back. They can't make lame men walk. They can't raise people from the dead. Those things stopped. Why? 
Well, because the apostles died and they were the guys who Jesus said, you have the power to do this. Like you can find the verses where they were given the power to do this. So for many of us, we acknowledge the miracles have stopped, although we still keep praying for like mysterious ones, which is strange, a different topic. But we acknowledge that kind of the superpower lightning casting miracles have stopped. Um, And yet what didn't stop, what we need to know didn't stop is exorcism. So just because I can't go up to you and heal you doesn't mean I can't can't teach you to pray against the demonic forces in your life that largely exist as bad ideas, bad arguments, and bad messages, because that's how they work. Again, they tell you stories, whether outside or inside your head, if they use the outside to get inside, they tell you stories until you fear, and then you lose all your time in panic and fear. It's just, it's what they do. It's just what they do. They do it to all of us. No one's immune from this, but I do think that in our present age, our ignorance has made us susceptible, shall we say. But remember then, just because we don't have the power to go and heal people on their sick beds with a word doesn't mean that our prayers in the Psalter do not, in fact, drive out demons. And that is not, and that, that is not the only way to actually do it. What do I mean by that? I said that too fast. I mean that when Jesus teaches people how to exercise demons, he tells them to pray the Psalms. I mean that when the Roman Catholic Church still does it, because they still do it, they do it by praying the Psalms for like days around the guy who's got the demon, if they find it. I've never seen this. I've only read about it. But what I know is it's not so different from what goes on in the book of Acts. When they are casting out demons, it is because the word of God about Jesus is present in their midst. And it is so the hearts and minds of those people would be freed. When they do miracles like the healings, it's a little bit different usually. It is often a matter of mercy that does happen, but there's a really important part to why the apostles got miracles and nobody after them did. Why the first Christians in Rome weren't all doing miracles everywhere. Why was that? And the reason is because the miracles are a very specific sign. They're a foretold sign of the Old Testament about the end of the Old Testament. So if you can think of it this way, the apostles being able to do miracles among the Jews is a sign to the Jews that Jesus is their Messiah. And thereby, when they reject him, the miracles continue as a sign that they have rejected him. So that the primary purpose of miracles, and this comes from Isaiah, is so that the people will be shown to be utterly evil in their rejection of Christ at that time. They're not to continue forever. What's to continue forever is faith and hope and love here, yes? And then again, those things teach us to see how we are under assault at all times by spirits and principalities that we cannot put our fingers on, but we know haunt us. We know they haunt us, right? All right, but then here's the other great message of this. In Acts the identity that you get to have when you are brought into Christ by baptism or by hearing, the identity that you get to have is as the blood bought. If you're going to write a word down, write down blood bought. Oh my goodness. There's like a game about this that has nothing to do with, with what it's talking about. It's about fighting monsters in a pit. The blood bought reality of Jesus is that when he shed his blood for you, that was the gold, silver, and eternal value beyond by which he bought you. 
You're his slave now. You're his possession now. You are owned now. And this is such good news. It's is such good news. It's way better to be a slave of Jesus Christ than to be a king of whatever this nonsense is we're living in. Because as a bought slave of Jesus Christ, you then know he's never going to cast you out. He's not going to sell you. He bought you with his own death. You're the blood bought. And so as you stand up to fight back against these things in your life, against where the demons are, it's doing it with the identity of being undefeatable in him. The demons tell you stories. You tell stories back. Better ones. One's about Jesus. Now, I want to give a hat tip. I'm not going to be able to do what I really want to do. That's very sad to me. I'm going to give a hat tip, though, to our texts here. And I want to bring out how all of these texts are ultimately about worship also. So in Acts chapter 15, when James summarizes the things we're not supposed to do from the Old Testament in the words, uh, idolatria, pornea, Pnigo, which means twisted things. And then I don't have the word blood. Oh, Hyma? Yeah, Hyma, which is blood. Um, uh, so, idolatria, pornea, you can hear the words in both of those, right? Uh, twisted things and blood. When he said to refrain from these, he was specifically referring to things that often show up in Old Testament pagan Canaanite worship. All right? So the first thing we should know about that set of four things is idolatry, porn, twisted things, and bloodshed are things the devil likes to see more of. And when you're worshiping demons, these things show up. Easiest example ever is our abortion clinic down, now it's a PD station, used to be an abortion clinic, all right? It was a dark place. It's a dark building. There's innocent blood that's been shed all over that place. You could tell driving by. Even the police station is not that safe feeling. <laughs> it's worse in a sense. Uh, uh, what is that about? It's about the shedding of innocent blood left upon the land and the conscience and psyche of the soul of the people. And the, the teaching here is, well, don't worship like that. Don't do those kinds of things. The scar your hearts and your minds and your, and your history. Hmm? That's why then John in 1 John 5 grabs onto little children, keep yourselves from idols as the last thing he says in the book. He has this long book. It's like a poem. It's like a big poem in a circle. People like get stunned by it because he's like, do this, but not this. It's like, how do I do that? But in a big, big circle, but it's, it's all very Eastern and, and flowy and, and all this. And then you get to the end and he just says, oh, by the way, keep yourselves from idols. He's not mentioned idols to this point. He just, just drops it there. Last thing he says. So that, you know, when, when the German liberals came around, of course, they said, well, that got added on. Yeah, that wasn't even really there. Someone just added that because it didn't belong. No. No, no, no. He just really wanted it to be that much of an emphatic point. That idolatry is the chief concern we have. What's idolatry? False worship. How do you know what false worship is? Well, again, blood, porn, twisted things. And they start to show up. Look for the statues people bow down to. Look for the things people grab onto physically in order to have hope. That's like the definition also, right? The creation instead of the creator. We're going to grab things. I get mad. I grab this, right? But again, the idea is where in your fear are you running? And literally, fixedly, to what thing? Are you running to this all the time, right? Why? 
Well, maybe it's an idol. Maybe that's why. Maybe you're worshiping it. You don't even know it. And And that's the trick with all this stuff, right? Is what are you doing with it? Not what is it, but what is it doing to you? Sorry, I messed with it there. All right. And so, again, the hope comes out of our gospel reading where Jesus says, look, I'm doing this to you. You guys want to debate me about what can happen and this and that, but let me tell you something. The devil's in charge, and unless someone ties him up, nothing can be done. But when someone ties him up, it'll be all over. I'll tell you that too. And then he just keeps going to the cross. Where else what he's going to do? He's going to tie the devil down and put a nail right through his tongue, bind him to the grave once and for all. And so that promise that the strong man is bound and being plundered, please hear that you're the plunder. You're the plunder. You're what he's getting. Yeah? Mm. What I really wanted to do, I'm not going to do, but I'm going to tell you about it. We can finish that in a few moments. What I really wanted to do here this morning also was go through all of the sermons in the book of Acts. I think if I just went straight into it, it'd be about a 25 to 30 minute sermon. Not going to do that now. But all the sermons in the book of Acts, you find them in the mouth of Peter and then Stephen and then St. Paul primarily. And what I believe is that if you want to know how preaching should sound in the church, well, then these are the places to go for the basics. If you want to have the preaching that grows the church, well, then it probably should be a lot like this stuff. And amazingly, when you go through it, you find they preach almost the same sermon every time. It's really quite something. It's always about Jesus being risen from the dead. Like every time they get open their mouths to really talk about it. Uh, this happens at a number of places. We're not going to look at them all. Um, but if you want to write down these notes, you might look at it. So after Pentecost, which is chapter 2, in chapter 3, Peter heals a beggar. And then um, this causes a problem. Everyone gets mad at him. But as a result, he preaches Jesus to the crowd and to the Pharisees that are upset about the healing. That's in chapter 3, verses 12 through 26, Peter's first sermon. Peter's second sermon, I should say, sorry. Pentecost is Peter's first. That was Peter's second. Peter's third sermon is after he gets arrested because of this same problem. So he's talking, he preaches, he gets arrested. Now he has to talk to somebody else. Chapter 4, 8 through 20, he gives his third sermon. And then he gets in even more trouble. And he gets to talk one more time. He's let out, he comes back. 5, 27 to 32. Those are Peter's primary sermons. And if you just take those three and read them in an evening, you're going to find a real neat nugget of special truth. I promise you that. Yeah. Chapter seven is this guy, Stephen, the first guy who gets killed for being a Christian. Paul, then called Saul, is the one who sees that he gets killed and all this, which is amazing because Saul is going to be the next preacher in a sense. So Stephen, chapter seven, Verse 1 through 53, now let me tell you, this is a, this is a sit in the window, fall asleep sermon, right? This is a long sermon. He goes through a great history of the Old Testament. I would encourage, if you want to try out Stephen's sermon, skip that part the first time. Just dive in at verse 44. Verse 44 to 53 of chapter 7. And you'll get why they killed him, actually. It'll be, it'll be 
pretty intense, <laughs> really. Um, you have this moment in chapter 9, verses 20 through 25, where this guy Saul is suddenly preaching, but you don't get to hear him yet. But it's, it's after Stephen's killed for preaching, Saul, who killed him, starts preaching. But you don't get to hear him yet. First Peter has one more sermon. This is his, what, fifth and final. This is at the house of Cornelius in the city of Joppa. He's a Roman centurion. Chapter 10, verses 34 to 43. And this will be a lot of the problem that causes that council we heard read earlier because all these Gentiles in Cornelius' house not only convert but start speaking in tongues. Oh my goodness, what do you do with that? Again, that's chapter 10, 34 to 43. The sermon, the sermon is there. Then you get this guy, Paul, who finally just gets a chance to preach. First time that we hear him is in the depths of his first missionary journey. He's way away from home. He's not near anybody he knows in a place called Antioch Pisidia. Antioch Pisidia, not the first Antioch where they were called Christians. That's chapter 13, verses 16 through 49. You can hear how long that is, but I again encourage Paul's first sermon this week, if nothing else. Acts 13, 16 to 49, Paul's first sermon. It's really, really good. Check it out. He'll also preach at Philippi and Thessalonica in chapter 16, 30 to 31, and chapter 17, 1 to 3, before he gets to the most famous preaching he does at this place called the Areopagus, which is where in Athens all the hoity-toity philosophers would go once upon a time. I mean, this is like the relic of Platonic greatness. Now it's the place of novelty. It's where they go for entertainment and to kind of laugh. And that's what they do when they hear Paul. They end up laughing him off the mountain. That's chapter 17, verses 22 to 34. And then he shifts from preaching to the Gentiles, that's Paul's three sermons to the Gentiles, to preaching to the Jews, which wasn't what he was sent to do, but it's going to get him in a lot of trouble. So he goes back to Jerusalem for Pentecost, shaves his head, and ends up in front of a mob. Why not? As chapter 22, verses uh, 1 through 29. And when you're in front of a mob that wants to kill you, what do you do? Naturally, you try to get their attention to speak more about Jesus, right? I mean, it's, it's a stunning story. The guy's just got brass like no one's business. It really is amazing. Yeah. Um, after this, he ends up being taken to the Sanhedrin. These are the rulers of the Jews. Chapter 23, 1 through 10 is the sermon he gives to them. He ends up put in jail under a guy named Felix that goes by. And then there's a guy named Festus who shows up. He's kind of a, like Pontius Pilate's place. Um, he has a friend who's kind of like King Herod. He's like his nephew. His name is Herod Agrippa. And he has a wife named Bernice. Paul gets a private audience with those three and the chance to speak with them about his defense, like why he shouldn't be put to death, basically. And instead, he goes straight at Agrippa. He makes every attempt to convert Agrippa to Christianity in that moment, and he almost gets there. He almost gets there. And you can read about that in chapter 26, verses 1 through uh, 32. Finally, finally, I mean, if you really want to, like, get something that never shows up in the church readings, like this is the parts of the Bible you just, I didn't know that was there. All right, Paul's final words are... We think of Paul as the guy who brings the grace because he preaches the grace. But his final words are more like, well, if you don't pick it up when it's laid down, that's not on me now. It's like the last thing he said. It's really intense. Uh, that's in, again, Acts chapter 28, 25 to 29. All right. Going through, if you, 
if you wrote any of that down, that will bless you this week to just go through those sermons. See how the apostles preached. See the words they used. Compare me to it. Challenge me if I don't meet it because I need to. I need to. I firmly believe that without the model of apostolic preaching, which is founded upon the Old Testament being fulfilled in the man, Jesus Christ, dying and rising as our king, if we don't preach that, we're preaching bobbly book. When we preach that, he is risen. Faith testifies in the name of Jesus. Amen.